0: I have to admit that uh, there is something that, that I struggle with uh, that is certainly, I think, at the heart of, of, a, lot of my, a lot of my sin and temptation personally. And it is the simple fact that I am a, an extremely impatient person. Uh, I, I hate, I despise waiting. Uh, I'm, I'm the guy who can't wait until Christmas morning to open presents even as a 27-year-old. I I really, I I hate waiting. I think the longest that I'm comfortable waiting for about anything is the two days that it takes Amazon to get the item that I ordered on my phone to my doorstep. (laughs) As I think about uh, waiting, I'm reminded of of my first year in seminary. Uh, I I had moved down to St. Louis after, after college and Uh, And that entire year was, for me, uh, rather difficult because it was a year spent, at least in my mind, spent waiting. Uh, Vanessa and I were engaged at the time, and she was still living uh, in Wisconsin, finishing up her undergrad degree. And so I was flying solo in St. Louis. And I remember because of, of that waiting, because of longing uh, for someone and something to be so close to me, something that I, I cared about so much, uh, to be able to, to be living with me and, and, and journeying through seminary and, and through that process alongside me, I just remember that year feeling excruciatingly long because that entire year was spent waiting, uh, waiting uh, to get married. Even though I was uh, thoroughly unprepared for how challenging and how hard and how much work marriage can be, (laughs) even in in the most challenging times of my relationship, I would not trade even the worst of it to go back to that time of of waiting. I I think maybe you're not nearly as impatient as I am, but I do think that for us as, as human beings... Waiting for things can be perhaps one of the most difficult things for us to endure. Especially we live in in such a culture that has this mindset of of instant gratification. Uh, There's no concept of of patience as as a a highly held virtue. Uh, You know, like I said before, that two days for Amazon, that's about as long as I can wait (laughs) I'm also reminded my, my father in law once shared with me a, a saying that a friend of his who works in the, West, the restaurant industry often uses. And it's two minutes is 20 minutes. Uh, two minutes is 20 minutes. And, and what's meant by that is if you can't give someone service in under two minutes, then it may as well be 20 minutes. That, that's sort of the mindset that many people, I either want instant service or, or I'll prepare myself to, to sit down and, and wait for a meal. That, that's the mindset that we have as Americans a lot of times. We hate waiting. We despise waiting. We're in we're an incredibly impatient culture, fixated on, on instant results, which makes being a Christian very challenging, isn't it? When at the heart of, of our faith is waiting, isn't it? I mean, think about those words of, of the creed that we come to in our series as we finish this We Believe series. Coming to the very end of the Nicene Creed, we confess, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That at the heart of our confession of faith is that we have a God who, yes, He has acted in the past both in creation, through the work of His Son. And yes, He is active today through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. But, we're also waiting for something to come. And when we confess these words of the creed, we confess things aren't as they should be. Things are not as they're going to be. Things are not as God has promised they will be. We are still Waiting for something. And this is something that I think for many of us isn't so much thought as it is felt. We we thoroughly feel the experience that things are not as they should be. We certainly feel that we're still looking and and watching and, and waiting for something. Now, as we talk about, about that future that we're looking for, that, that brings us into the realm of, of what we often call in the world of theology eschatology. And, and a lot of times that word eschatology has, has a lot of baggage because of some sort of kind of dystopian pictures of the future popularized in the 90s and early 2000s, like in the Left Behind series. But when we're talking about eschatology, very simply, if we break down that word, we have the word eschaton meaning the end and Logos, meaning word, eschatology is quite simply a word about the end. In other words, what we are talking about, we're saying, hey, what does Scripture, what does the Word of God have to say about the end of all things and the future toward which the church looks? And this isn't just covered in in Revelation, actually. It's all over Paul's letters. He's very concerned with the future toward which the church and toward which... Every single believer looks. And there's a very clear reason why he's concerned with that. Because when we get the end of our story, when we get our future hope straight, it helps us make a lot of sense about the present. About how things are, how we're called to operate in the world, and, and the future that we're looking to. When we get the future straight, it helps us get the present straight helps us understand how we as believers are called to live. In fact, that's often the context in which this subject comes up in Scripture. Paul will often talk about the future and paint this picture of the life of the world to come as a way of encouraging believers to embrace the holiness and and the mission that they've been called to. In fact, that's precisely what he does in, in our reading from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. These words that we read today, they they come on the back of of this long discussion that Paul has regarding the resurrection of the dead and and the physical resurrection that that will be coming. There was this misconception that, that the body will simply die and stay dead and Paul is making this defense saying, no, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too we will be raised from the dead. And then in verse 50 he comes to these words. He says, I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, it's important for us to put these words that Paul uses here into context because what he isn't saying is that our bodies, our our flesh and blood, will just die and stay dead. Rather, what he is saying is, is that our flesh and blood, that corrupted state of our bodies and our entire human nature... Because of sin, it cannot inherit God's kingdom. Paul's not painting this this body versus soul dichotomy. He is saying our humanity, our entire human nature is corrupted because of the first sin of Adam and Eve. And because of that, none of us, neither body nor soul, can inherit the kingdom of God. That is our state because of our sinfulness because of that inclination that we have, to to use the words of of the Augsburg Confession, because we are so curved in on ourselves because of our sinful human nature, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. On our own, you and I cannot inherit eternity. On our own, our destiny is eternal death and damnation. That would be our 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 lot in life. As the psalmist says, no one is righteous. Not even one. But we're not on our own, are we? Paul shifts gears in verse 51. He says, behold. And every time we see this word, behold, in Scripture, it's almost always this indicator that the writer is going to say something really, really important. Paul's saying, hey, look. Listen up. Check this out. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, not every single person will be dead when Jesus returns. There will be some still living, but the dead and the living alike will all be changed. He says, verse 52, "...in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Paul's saying, in a moment at the return of Christ, the blink of an eye, the snap of a finger, we will be changed. And our weak human bodies will put on the power of Christ's own resurrection. That we will be raised to perfection and immortality just as Jesus was raised from the dead. When we say, I look for the resurrection of the dead, we're saying, I look for a day. A day when Jesus will come back into our midst to raise us from the dead, to transform our weakness and our sinfulness, our corrupted human state into perfection. To make our bodies, our flesh and blood like His own resurrected flesh and blood. That's the future that we're looking forward to. I think for a moment just what incredible, extraordinarily good news this is. For, for the person whose body feels like a prison... The, the promise that we have is, is not that we're just going to shed our human bodies for all eternity, but rather what we're going to shed is the sin, the death, the corruption that makes our bodies feel like we're in chains. Think about what good news this is for, for the person born blind or deaf. The promise that the resurrection speaks is, is you're going to see again. You're going to hear again. You're going to get your body back as it was meant to be. Think about what good news this is. For for the person who who is paralyzed due to a tragic accident, who longs to walk again, who, who longs to run again, the promise that Paul makes here, the promise that our God makes is you're going to walk again you're going to get your body back. Think about what good news this is to those who have, who have lost loved ones to, to cancer and disease. Is that person that you long to have and to hold, you're going to get their body back. That's what we look for when we look for the resurrection of the dead. That's what we look for in the life of the world to come. That we're going to get our bodies back. We're going to get our physical human nature back as it was meant to be. Free from the shackles and the corruption of sin. Free from death. And when that day comes, Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When that day comes, when the resurrected Jesus returns to raise us up with Him, we're going to get a shout and declare these, these words that, I, that Paul quotes from Isaiah. We get to stand and, and even point the finger and, and taunt death Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Death will have no more hold on us. Death itself will be undone. You know, the hymn that that we opened worship with with this morning, All Creatures of Our God and King. Actually, uh, Pastor Brad, uh, Janelle and I, we were at a a conference yesterday, and one of the speakers, he he brought up this hymn. And there's a verse in this hymn that, that we actually rarely sing in church, but it's actually quite a a powerful and beautiful statement speaking about death. It says, And thou, most kind and gentle death, waiting to hush our latest breath, O praise him, alleluia. On the last day when Christ returns to raise us all up, even death itself will bend the knee. Even death itself will be subject to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus. But I think you and I, we both know that that day hasn't quite come yet, has it? We still feel the sting and the pain of death. We still long to see those loved ones who have passed away. Death still hurts. We, we despise death, and, and rightly so. I mean, death is, is the opposite of what God wants for his creation, isn't it? We have a God who is the God of the living. We have, we have a God who, who delights in life. And, and death is the undoing of life. Death for, for human beings, it's, it's the ripping apart of body and spirit. That, that even though we have the, the weakening of death's blow because we have the promise that, that our spirits will rest with Christ until the day of the resurrection, death for us is still a bad thing. It hurts. As a church and and individuals within our church right now in this season of our church, we know that as well as anyone. Death is awful. And and our eyes and and our, our emotions would tell us that right now death still wins the day. but our faith tells us something radically different. Our faith causes us to look into the face of death and give thanks to God because we have the victory over death because of Jesus. See, in Jesus, we see one who has actually entered into death and has come away victorious. That that in all of human history, no matter how wealthy, no matter how powerful someone is, death always has the final say. But in Jesus, we have something radically different. That in Jesus, one willingly enters death in our place and comes away victorious. And in the gift of baptism, we're promised that we are joined to Jesus' death. His death becomes our death, and therefore, His resurrection, ours as well. We have the seal and promise That even death will not have its hold on us. Even death doesn't get the final say for us. Because of our faith, because of our baptism, we get to look at death and say thanks be to God because we have the victory. And because of that, we are called to live differently. We are called to continue on, to to remain on that path, Paul concludes this chapter saying, therefore, in other words, having heard all this, because you know and believe this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Paul says, you know what's coming. You know the future that that God has in store for you. And because you know of that, continue on in the faith. Continue to work. Continue to strive. Continue to live your life in glory to the risen risen Jesus. One of my favorite authors, uh, N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, he he comments uh, on this passage. Uh, And and he comments on it in, in such a way that it's not just true. It's not just good or, or, or very smart sounding. He comments on it in such a way I just believe is, is so beautiful. He says this, he says, What we can and must do in the present is build for the kingdom. This brings us back to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight once more. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection of itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of His wonderful world which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of His Spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. I'm going to read that again. What we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. Uh, I, I, can't, uh, I can't help but read those words uh, and, and think of, of what Goon shared before worship this morning. And, and thinking about the way that Lamb of God as a congregation in the face of, of death and tragedy that just has come up again and again and again. That, that as our congregation has surrounded those people who are hurting and mourning and showered them with love and grace and the words and promises of Jesus, that doesn't just matter now. It does not just matter now. It will not be wasted. In fact, the fullness of those actions, I believe, will be realized on the day that Jesus returns and we live for, with Him forever in His kingdom. With that in mind, I, I bid you, church, keep going. Keep striving. Keep, keep loving. Keep serving. Labor in the Lord. Be steadfast. Be immovable because you know... You know because of the power of Christ. You know because of the promise of the resurrection. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.